Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School lesson for the fifth Sunday in Lent. That's March 26, 2023. And today we're looking at John chapter 11. And we'll look at verses 17 through 27 and verses 38 to 53. This is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead at least large parts of that story. Again, John 11, 17 to 27, and then 38 to 53. Now, as some background from the beginning of this chapter, before we get to our actual gospel reading for this week, Jesus has heard that Lazarus is ill, but he postpones journeying to Bethany where Lazarus lives. He declares to the disciples that the illness will not lead to death, but he also tells the disciples that Lazarus has died. Then he declares that this illness is so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so adding up those puzzle pieces, Jesus is declaring that though Lazarus has died, Jesus can give him life. The disciples don't know what to make of that. They go with Jesus to Bethany, and when they arrive there, they find that Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days. And of course, the climax of this story is when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus revives and comes out of the tomb. But even though that's the uh, the culmination of this story, Most of the significant theology comes in Jesus' conversations with Mary and Martha. And this year, our gospel reading especially looks at his conversation with Martha. Anyways, to the text, starting at John 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. The four-day mark is significant because we have a document from rabbinic teaching from the third century, so just 200 years or less later, that um, the rabbis were teaching that the soul of the one who has died hovers near the tomb for three days after death before the soul departs. So with that understanding, um, the thought was that perhaps someone who appeared to be dead or was dead, they could revive for three days, but after three days, um, there was no more chance of life, life again. So um, if that teaching was prevalent already in the first century when Jesus was alive, not only is Lazarus dead, but Lazarus has been dead for four days, which means in the common understanding of the rabbis and thus the people that that. Lazarus returning to life is just impossible. It would take a miracle. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Bethany is near Jerusalem And Jesus' own suffering and death is not that far away. This is John chapter 11, but 
But a lot of the rest of the Gospel of John is occupied by Jesus teaching his disciples and praying at the Last Supper. So he really is already close to Palm Sunday and the entrance into Jerusalem in John chapter 11. The fact that this miracle takes place in Bethany, so near Jerusalem, is uh, it serves the purpose of tying the death and resurrection of Lazarus to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can't have Lazarus rise from the dead if Jesus is not going to. Now, the reason that John gives for the proximity note about Bethany being close to Jerusalem is that many of the Jews came to console Mary and Martha about their brother. Now, that's a statement that can be taken more than one way. In some cases in the Gospel of John, the Jews simply refers to the Jewish people. Think of the sign above Jesus' head at his crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But also, sometimes quite significantly, the term the Jews in the Gospel of John refers to the Jewish leaders, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, or especially the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that oversaw the life of the Jews under the supervision of the Romans. Now, we don't know for sure what it means here in this verse 19, but it is possible from this text that Lazarus isn't just another guy living near Jerusalem, but Lazarus is actually a member of the ruling council, a member of the Sanhedrin. It is possible for Lazarus to be on the Sanhedrin and also be a friend of Jesus. After all, another character in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, is both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin and a friend of Jesus so much that he comes and collects Jesus' body after the crucifixion. So is Lazarus a member of the Sanhedrin, and why are we even asking the question? It's because of something that happens later on in this chapter. Moving on in the story, though, in verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, we've had Martha and Mary in a story before that was back in Luke chapter 10. That was where Martha welcomed Jesus to their home for dinner. And if she welcomed Jesus home, then then the disciples were along for the ride. So it's a big meal. And Martha's hurrying all over the house to get the meal ready. And Jesus sits down to teach. And Mary, Martha's sister, just sits and listens to Jesus. And if you remember, uh, Martha says to Jesus, you know, Lord, um, why don't you tell my sister to help me? And Jesus responds that uh, Mary has chosen the one thing needful, the one thing necessary, and it will not be taken from her. Now, in Luke chapter 10, what Jesus is saying to Martha is that Martha's service to Jesus is great, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's good, and it's proper, But the one thing necessary is to hear the saving word that Jesus speaks. So while it's good for us to do good works in service to God, it's better for us to 
hear his gospel, to hear his, his word of life and salvation. So there in Luke chapter 10, when Mary's going around preparing, or when Martha's going around preparing the meal, Mary sits and listens to Jesus. Now in John chapter 11, when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she's out the door to meet him. But Mary stays seated in the house. We'll come across Mary in this house one more time. That's in John chapter 12. And there, while Jesus is with Mary and Martha and Lazarus again, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume to prepare him for burial. And so she fills the whole house with the fragrance of perfume as as the the perfume and the spices will, will fill the grave with, uh, with fragrance when his body is laid to rest. And so that is when she performs this, this simple and loving service to Jesus. Overall, Mary seems quite passive. In Luke 10 and John 11, she's just sitting in the house. In John 12, she's in the house preparing Jesus' body for burial because she trusts that he speaks the truth when he says he's going to die. So while she's quiet... She really is a symbol of of, of faith and proper faith, trusting in Jesus, the word made flesh, trusting the word that Jesus speaks when he he says that he's going to die, and living in hope that that death is not the end. So while Mary stays in the house, Martha rushes out to meet Jesus. And so we pick this up in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha makes a strong statement of faith here, but it's kind of a mixed bag. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. True enough, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So, Martha believes that Jesus can work wonders, but not without the help of God, which means she believes that Jesus is, in fact, a wonder worker who gets his power from God, but that Jesus is not himself God who can work miracles on his own. So, Essentially, Martha says, if you had been here, God would have used you to raise my brother. And now, if you pray, if you ask from God that he might still raise my brother from the dead, then God can still raise my brother. Not you can, because you're just the wonder worker, but, but God can. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, because that's when 
apart from wonder workers like you, Jesus, God will raise all of his people from the dead. And that's when Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And that's a huge statement. This is one of those I am statements of John where Jesus says, I am Yahweh. I'm not just a wonder worker who can channel God's power when God wishes it to be so. I am, I am. I am God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, I am the resurrection I can raise from the dead and the life. I am the one who breathes life into man, who gives life so that people live. It's an astonishing statement. It's a contradiction of what Martha believes. And Jesus goes on to say, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, that sounds contradictory. If you die, then live. Then if you're living, then how can you not die because you've already died? And that's because Jesus is speaking of two different deaths. The first death is the death of the body, a death that interrupts but isn't eternal. The second death Jesus is talking about is eternal death. And for those who believe in him, they have eternal life. So we want to paraphrase what Jesus says. He says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, that first bodily death, yet shall he live because I will raise him from the dead. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never then die the second eternal death. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Which is a nice confession of faith. It's very similar to what Peter says in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we should know that Martha still doesn't answer the question that Jesus asks. He asks, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And she says, I believe you're the Christ and the Son of God. The jury is still out on whether or not Jesus can actually raise the dead, whether or not he is I am or something less than that. All right, then we skip ahead in our gospel reading to verse 38, and we'll run this through verse 57. And we read, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So so Lazarus' tomb in Bethany is a cave with a stone, just like Jesus' tomb by Jerusalem will be a cave with a stone. Again, the, uh, the two miles apart, part of this of the story between the two cities and the similarity of the caves these are to say Lazarus death and Jesus death are tied together Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead because Jesus will die and will also rise from the dead and not too much later 
All right, so so Jesus came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. All right, Um, I, I suspect that One of the reasons that the rabbis taught the soul stuck around near the tomb for three days was it was really around the fourth day when bodies would especially start to turn, um, all the more so in in the heat of of the Middle East on a hot day. And so Martha Redley points out here, um, we, we know he's dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. He is returning to dust. And that includes an awful stench, an awful stink along the way. That's a, um, an olfactory testimony of the wages of sin. So she objects that there will be an odor. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, the glory of God is to defeat death, and give life. The glory of God is to uncorrupt what sin has corrupted. So I've used this illustration before where where you have a rotten apple, you can't uncorrupt it. You can't make it fresh and good again. So all that's left to do is throw it away. And boy, with some of the produce in the stores these days, I could make a fortune uncorrupting apples. If you cannot uncorrupt fruit, there's no way you can uncorrupt a dead body. When a soldier has a gangrenous limb, the surgeon can't save it. He has to amputate the limb to save what is left of the life. If the entire body is dead, it can't be brought back to life. If it is rotting because of death, it certainly can't be uncorrupted again. But here here Jesus says that he is about to do that very thing. Lazarus will not come out of the tomb as, as the walking dead, as a zombie of some sort, Lazarus will come out of the tomb uncorrupted because Jesus reverses the curse of sin. He takes away the corruption that sin brings. And by the way, um, this is the Gospel of John. Another place where you see the glory of God in Jesus is when he's dying on the cross. It doesn't look glorious, but it's by his death that he defeats death. He bears all the curse and corruption of sin and defeats it there, then rises again fully himself. Not a scratch on him except for the holes in his hands and his feet as testimony to you and me. And because that is where Sin and all of its wages, all of its corruption is defeated. The cross is the most glorious place of all.
Anyways, back to our story. We read in verse 41, So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, that's an interesting prayer in this respect. When Jesus prays in the Gospel of John and calls his father, Father, aside from this text, he only does so in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays that high priestly prayer. And then when he's crucified, as in, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So once again, as Jesus prays to his father before raising Lazarus from the dead, the, uh, the terminology of the prayer, and especially the title he gives to God the Father, calling him Father, that ties Lazarus' death and resurrection to Jesus' own death and resurrection. Here, Jesus says, I thank you that you have heard me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus declares he trusts that the Father hears him, and if it is his will, that he would take this cup of suffering from him. All right, then in verse 43, we read, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his voice wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Right, so Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Um, I've said before when it comes to to, um, most of the miracles that Jesus performs, we don't know the volume or tone of his voice, so... We always imagine him dramatically commanding blindness to be gone or demons to flee, but because he is the Almighty Son of God, it might simply just be almost a casual blindness be gone, demon get out of here, because Jesus' power is that irresistible. Here, though, John makes a point to say that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now, it could be that he's shouting into a, into a dark tomb and wants to make sure that his voice gets in there. Um, it could be that he's with a crowd that doesn't want him or them to, to get any closer. I mean, some might think that Jesus is shouting because he's got to get his word into a, a dead man's ears to be heard. But we have, we have better explanations than that. In John 5.25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So Jesus declares that the time will come when the Son of God will call the dead to life, and they will rise from the dead. 
Now that is fulfilled here in John 11, but it also foreshadows the last day. When Jesus returns in glory and summons all from the grave, summoning his saints to eternal life. So, so um, that loud voice, that great voice foreshadows the Son of God in glory calling out, come forth in the last day. It also kind of reminds us of John chapter 10, when Jesus speaks of being the good shepherd. So say John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus says to him, to the good shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Or later on in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So, Jesus, the Son of God, the I Am in human flesh, and the Good Shepherd, calls with a loud voice into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And this sheep hears his voice. This is beautiful. His, his sheep hears his voice, and he follows him by coming out of the tomb to be unbound with the, uh, the claws of death said he might follow Jesus more. So now Lazarus lives, and now we have the, uh, the reaction in verses 45 through, I guess, 53. I said 57, but it's 53. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here we have... Many of the Jews, again in verse 45, and is this just um, people who live in Judea, or does this refer to, does this refer to the, uh, the, the leaders of Judea, the, the council, the Sanhedrin? Um, if you want to run with, it's just people who live in Judea, that, that's fine, that's how I've usually taken it myself, but then the question arises... Well, then why do they report this to the Pharisees? Are they ratting Jesus out for raising a man from the dead? Are they trying to convert the Pharisees to, to, uh, to follow Jesus? So let's run it this way. Let's say that when many of the Jews who come with Martha believed in him, let's say that refers to many of the Jewish leaders leading Pharisees and Sadducees, and especially the select who made up the Sanhedrin, they believed in him. And consider, if Lazarus is in fact a, uh, a, a member of the Sanhedrin, and his fellow Sanhedrinites, or whatever they're called, have come to comfort Mary and Martha, and now they see one of their own raised from the dead, that's going to cause quite the kerfuffle on the Sanhedrin. 
Because by raising Jesus, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus has brought him out of the synagogue of the Sanhedrin, if you will, into his own synagogue, those who follow Jesus. So at this point then, some of them go and they tell the Pharisees and gather the council because they have defectors on the council. Nicodemus has always been soft. Now Lazarus is back from the dead and owes his life to Jesus. And others of the council, if that is the Jews of verse 45, believe in him. And if the council votes to follow Jesus, then... His enemies are afraid that all will be lost. The Romans will come and destroy them. So they don't know what to do there. They're in a great quandary here. And then we read in verse 49, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year, they rotated, um, Caiaphas is a pragmatist. He says, we've got this one guy, Jesus, who's causing trouble. And if people believe he's the Messiah and follow him, Rome will wipe us out. So pragmatically speaking, if we get rid of the one guy, even if he's working miracles, the nation survives. So it's better for the one man to die so that the nation lives. Total, pragmatic, cold, cynical argument on the part of Caiaphas. But as John points out, because John himself just loves double meanings in this gospel, John points out the irony. It is better for one man to die that the nation might live. But Caiaphas accidentally prophesies by the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, the one man, will die so that a nation might live, not not Judea. They'll be wiped out by the Romans in 70 AD anyway. But the nation that lives because Jesus dies is the church. It's the gathering of God's people. Because Jesus dies, he gathers sinners into his kingdom. They are his people. The, sh- the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, they are the citizens of his kingdom and heirs of eternal life. And so even though Caiaphas does not know what he is saying, he accidentally declares it because Jesus dies, many will live, and they'll live eternally because Jesus is in fact the resurrection and the life. What does the council decide? Despite the fact that they might have many defectors, the vote goes to condemnation. We read in verse 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him, to put Jesus to death. 
And the way the justice system worked in those days had meant that a warrant is issued for his arrest and Jesus is presumed guilty until he's proven innocent. All right, a fascinating quick look, hope fascinating quick look at a, at the story of Lazarus raised from the dead. Maybe some things you hadn't heard before. Um, as Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. He is, in fact, asserting once again that he is God in the flesh. He is the one who breathed life into Adam in the first place and now gives life to Lazarus once again. Where Adam was just dust, Lazarus's rotten flesh, but Christ comes to reverse the curse of sin. That is true for Lazarus. That is true for you and me and all of God's people. That whoever believes in him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in, me, in him shall never die. So, God bless you and your further meditations on this text. God grant you every good gift if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the peace of the Lord be with you. Amen.